Uh, before we turn back to the portion of Scripture that we read together in Luke's Gospel, in Luke 3, let's look to God again. Let's pray. Let's ask God for help. Let's pray together. You are the good shepherd. You have brought out your own. You go before us. We follow you. For we know your voice. And so, Lord God in heaven, we ask that in these moments, as we come to Luke's gospel, we would hear that voice that we know. And we pray, Lord God, as the good shepherd, uh, that you would call to us and address us, speak to us, that we might follow you more closely. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in recent times, friends, um, the Free Church of Scotland, so that's our denomination, um, we have entirely restructured how we are going to train men for ministry. Did you hear that? So, the Free Church of Scotland, in recent times, we've changed uh, our ministry training. So, starting from, I think it's starting from the General Assembly of last year, 2022, Not only will candidates for the ministry be required to complete four years of study in a seminary, four years of study, but in addition to that, they will also be placed in a local congregation for the duration of their studies in order to gain experience. You follow me, don't you? So four years in the seminary, four years of whatever as systematics and biblical languages and all that good stuff, at the same time placed in a local congregation for those four years. And I am sure that immediately you see the rationale for that. We want uh, these men, these ministers, uh, to be trained academically. We want that, don't we? Trained in theology, trained in the Bible. But we also want uh, these men to be trained practically. Well, and what should I think be a, a, a thoroughly exciting uh, development for the life of our church. St. Peter's Free Church is set to play a crucial role in these things, and we are set to become a placement congregation for our denomination. So we are going to play a crucial role in the training of men for ministry in the Free Church. Now, immediately, I know what's happening here, immediately you have questions at the back of your mind forming, questions like, okay, what's that going to look like practically, or how can I be involved in that, or, or, or how can I support that? You've got questions. To all of your questions, I have the same answer, and it is three lovely little letters you know what they are? A G M. <laughs> so come along. A shameless plug uh, for the 1st of February and the AGM. Come along, learn some more about what it looks like uh, in the life of our church. Now, as we uh, think about this topic, we think just now, but with the AGM in view, we think about the, the, the training of ministers. Is it not wonderful to see where we are led, or where we arrive in God's Word this morning? Because as we begin to think about ministry as a church, and we think about ministers and training, look what God does. 
In Luke chapter 3 today, he brings us to John the Baptist. And I'll tell you this, what God does is really give us an overview or a, a, a bird's eye view of what gospel ministry actually looks like. We come to John the Baptist and we're shown what Christ-honoring ministry really is. And I tell you, we have to be ambitious this morning. I really hope you've had a good breakfast and lots of coffee. Uh, because I noted that one of my colleagues, uh, he took 11 sermons to work through what we're going to try and do today. Uh, so, you, yeah, you've had your porridge. We're going to be ambitious this morning. Uh, and we're going we're gonna to try and cover this ground quickly, rapidly. But we're going to try and look at five aspects of gospel ministry. Five aspects, five C's of gospel ministry. We'll go through it. We'll go through it quite briskly. We'll try and cover the ground this morning. Okay, so can I ask you to make sure you've got the Bible open in front of you? If you've got a copy of Scripture, either one of these or on your phone or tablet. or we'll, We will try and project some of the verses we look up up on the screen if you don't have a copy. But let's go for the first, what is it, five? Five C's, gospel ministry. With, with application for us, for you, for me. First of all, let's think about the context. There's your first C, the context, the gospel ministry. Let's think about that from Luke 3. Now, um, I think I'm right in saying that one of the most uh, visited websites uh, of the past decade, one of the most famous websites in all of the world, apparently, is the FBI's 10 most wanted list. For some reason, that drags everyone's attention there. Maybe you've seen it. Maybe you've been on there scouring. You know what it is, obviously. It details 10 of the most fearsome sort of fugitives that are at large today. You get the idea, the 10 most wanted list. Isn't it something to see that as we come into John chapter 3, isn't that what we have almost before us, if you look at the beginning of this chapter? Because do you see what happens here? In order to root John the Baptist's ministry into time and space and into history, yes, Luke gives us this list of leaders. There's seven names. He's leads, political leaders, religious leaders. But as you just scan them, what, what is it that strikes you about these religious and political leaders? If you look at it, Man, these are some wicked blokes, in a sense. Is that fair enough to say? Come on, look at some of these people. We have got, we've got Tiberius. We've got Herod Antipas. We've got his brother. Not a great dude. We've got Pontius Pilate. You know, Annas, Caiaphas. Do, do, do you see the idea here? We've got religious, political leaders. Pretty cruel people. Some of them are going to be involved in John the Baptist's coming death, aren't they? Some of them are going to be involved in actually in Jesus' later death. Now, maybe you're wondering, well, Luke, why has Luke set things up like that? Why has he listed these, these people of cruelty? But if you get, think grammatically with me for a moment. That's always a stimulating thing to do, isn't it? But think grammatically for a moment. Think about the main clause in the opening paragraph. What is it? What happens here? Do you notice it? What's the grammatical high point? In the 15th year of Tiberius, then Annas, Caiaphas, all these names, what happens? Where, where does it all lead? The 15th year, all these guys, and what happened? But listen, the word of God 
came to John. That's the high point, isn't it? In the 15th year, here's the big list of what happened. But John received an, an inward call from God and a call into, into ministry. Do, do you see what is being said? Friends, here, God was able to overrule all of that wickedness. Yes, we look at this, don't we? And we see all the names and we think, wow, that's a dark hour in world history. But yes. It was at that darkest hour that God brought forth light. And against that backdrop of all of these religious and political rulers, what does he do? But he brings forth gospel ministry. Gospel ministry. Let me make two very quick points with one application. One, Scotland desperately needs men for ministry. Now, even within our own denomination, the Free Church of Scotland, that is abundantly true. I am terrible with numbers. So I just keep forgetting what the numbers are. But I'm told that all the time, and somebody no doubt will correct me at the door, but it's something like this, that even to fill some of the vacancies that we're going to have over the next decade, the Free Church needs about 70 new men to come forward for ministry. 70. That's just in the Free Church of Scotland. Scotland desperately needs new ministers. Second point to say is that our leadership, our political and, and religious leadership too is awash with ungodliness, isn't it? I don't think I'm going to receive uh, too much pushback from you. And I know, of course, there are wonderful exceptions to that rule. But we, in essence, are governed by godlessness. We are governed in Scotland, governed in the UK, by leaders, political leaders, who pay very little attention, give little heed to God and his word. And so what is the application that flows out of this? Should we not be praying that what happens in Luke chapter 3 happens time and time and time again in Scotland? That in our spiritual wilderness and against the backdrop of our ungodly rule, that God does this, that God provides an inward call in ministry for men time and time and time again. Do you, do you see what should happen? Luke chapter 3 here should drive our congregation to our knees and drive us to our knees in prayer. So we see a context for, for gospel ministry. Second of all, second C is the content. So context, one. Two, content of gospel ministry. Because, okay, God calls John into ministry. But what does he call him to do? What does God call John to say? Now, perhaps we can look at verse three. If, if we do that... We'll get to the uh, heart of this. What do you see? Uh, I think you see it's itinerant, do you? So John the Baptist was moving about the place uh, to, to preach. You see it's itinerant, don't you? you? You also see that it's preparatory. So John the Baptist was fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy that's listed out for us. And he is preparing the way for the Lord. And he is pointing to the coming one, the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that's good. Now, Look at it, though. What was the, the crux, the fundamental crux of John's ministry? What was it about? What do you read? He is proclaiming a baptism of 
repentance, yes? That's it, isn't it? Now, friends, if we're going to understand this, I, I think a little bit of, of background might help. I want you to, to, to follow me on this. <coughs> Excuse me. So first century world, at the time, if a Gentile wanted, a Gentile, if they wanted to convert and come amongst the community, the worshipping community of Israel, that Gentile had to do a couple of things. You know one of them at least, don't you? The Gentile had to be circumcised, right? We, we would expect that if you're going to enter the covenant community. The second thing the Gentile had to do was be baptized, to go through, if you're going to become a, a part of the worshipping community of Israel, the Gentile had to go through this ritual washing process, yes? Now, you can see from the screen that that's what's kind of happening. But hang on a second. These are Jews going out to John. So what on, what on earth is happening here? Well, of course, John's baptism was a sign, wasn't it? It's a sign of one crucial spiritual reality. And what is that word? It's a sign of repentance. Now, the Greek word that we're dealing there is quite a famous word that you might know, and it's the word metanoia. Now, that is a compound word, and it's a, a word that really means, listen, re repentance means a full change of mind, a full change of, of life. So you can see, can't you, what John the Baptist's ministry was about. He is here declaring that the correct prelude to the coming of the Christ is what is to make a spiritual about face. That's the correct response to Christ, isn't it? So yes, John is, is calling for people to oh, grieve over your sin, mourn over your sin. But John is saying to, to all of these masses coming out, I mean, he's saying you must do more than that. It can't just be mourning. It can't just be grieving. You have to actually turn away from your sin and you have to turn to God in faith, a spiritual about face, a metanoia, a repentance. Now, of course, I think what we could do, you and I right now, is again consider ministry, couldn't we? Because just as that was a crucial part of John's message, and wait a minute, that was a crucial part of Jesus' message, wasn't it? And just as that was a crucial part of the apostolic preaching of the church, what does Scotland need to hear today? Today, Scotland needs to hear the same message that John has right there. So we, we do not need to, to hear from people who love to put on, you know, what it's like in Scotland today, you know, put on the nice long robes and get up the front and, and give us five minutes on, on social justice or LGBT, you know, no. What Scotland desperately needs to, to happen to hear is a calling to repentance before God. Of course we could linger there, couldn't we? But do we not also as a church need to practice what we preach? And so if you are in the room this morning and you come into this place and you know just now before God that you are not right in Christ, you come into this room and you have not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, I, I, I wonder do you see on what is on that screen why all of this is so important? Look at what is at stake Look at the screen. What is at stake? 
This is a baptism of repentance. Listen, for the forgiveness of sins. That is what is at stake. It is only through a godly repentance that you can be forgiven by God. Do you hear that? It's the only way that you turn from your sin and you turn to the loveliness of Jesus Christ. You turn to him as a friend. You turn to him as a savior from that sin and you will find cleansing. You will find it all washed away in Jesus Christ. That is the only way. Will you not heed that if you're not a Christian? And even today, today you yourself repent. We see the context of, of gospel ministry, don't we? Not an easy context. We see the content, and perhaps we could say, uh, not an easy content either. Thirdly, we see the character. You still with me? Three of five, we're getting there. The character of gospel ministry. <coughs> Many at St. Peter's have been uh, Christians for a long, long time. Uh, Many of you have been members in quite a number of different churches as well. So maybe you could do this with me. Maybe you can scan back all of those years and pick out a time where the opening of a sermon has really grabbed your attention. So scan back over the years and all these different ministries and all this different stuff, all that good, all those years. Uh, can you remember a time where a sermon, the opening of a sermon, really grabbed your attention? Um, I was trying to think of an example for myself, and I, I got one. I remember years ago, before I was in ministry, sitting in a church, and there was a visiting minister. <laughs> and he was, you know, the, the main minister, the normal minister, did the rest of it. And then this guy was invited up to preach, and, and he got up, and he's going to begin a sermon. He comes up to the front, and do you know what he does to begin it? He sang. He sang a, a couple of lines from a hymn. And he couldn't sing. <laughs> and he couldn't sing. And I was, I was, why did his wife not tell him not to do this? Uh, and uh, I sat there. And I, and I did think, it went through my head. If his intention was to get everybody at the, <laughs> to waken up and to be on the edge of their seat, he absolutely succeeded. Because we're all saying, is he going to sing again? Do you, and he did. He did. So I'm sure you can think of an instance where the beginning of a sermon has really grabbed your attention. Do you know what? No matter what example we can think of, I think it pales into insignificance to how arresting John's opening words to these masters, they are. Look at this in, 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 in verse 7. What does he say to them as the, as the crowds come out to be baptized? <laughs> what does he say in verse 7? He's, here's this opening gambit. You brood of vipers. Yeah, I, that's something, isn't it? How would you have reacted this morning? Welcome to St. Peter's. We've got our EGM on the 1st of February. You poisonous snakes. How would that have gone down? It's something, isn't it? You brood of vipers. Essentially, you sons of the devil. John says. Now, what, why, what do we think about that? Immediately, we have to, to ask, but well, why? Like, why does John begin like this? You brood of vipers. Now, I think there's lots going on, but fundamentally, what I think John do, is doing here is trying to get this crowd to sense the urgency 
of the gospel message. Is that not what he's doing? The urgency. See, I think we can safely deduce from verse 8 that what many of the crowd were doing that were coming out to the Jordan there, what they were doing is placing their trust in the wrong sort of things, weren't they? Do you notice what they're, he's saying? Don't just view yourselves as sons of Abraham. Don't just have your hope in your, your ethnicity or your connection to godly people from yesteryear. Do you see what John's trying to do? He's trying to get them to see it's not just your ethnicity that is important. He's trying to get them to see unless you yourself change, unless you personally lay hold of God by faith, he's trying to get them to see you are, unless that happens, you are in urgent spiritual danger. Look at it. Look at verses 7 to 9. Have we got that there on the screen? I'd love you to see there, scan it, and notice all of the talk of judgment. But actually, Christian friend, I'd love you to notice how pressing that talk is. Do you see verse 7, first of all? Yes, there's talk of God's wrath, the reality of God's wrath at sin. But what does he say about it? Fleeing. Fleeing. And then the, the one that I love is verse 9. There's a, just a, there's a little subtle difference that's really great here. Because what does he not say? So he uses this, this image of, of judgment, doesn't he? This, the axe being at the root of a tree. We all get that that's a picture of judgment. I'm sure we do. The axe at the foot of the tree. Now, look what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, it doesn't say the axe is even now laid at the root of the tree. Now, that, there would be a certain urgency, wouldn't there, if that's what he said? The axe is even now at the, the foot of the tree. But in the Greek, there's, there's a change in the word order. So in the original languages, some, some of the words are moved to the front for emphasis. So it's not the axe is even now at the root. What is it? Look at John to the crowd and he's saying, it's not the axe, it's even now the axe is at the root of the tree. God's wrath come. Even now it's ready. Even now. Do you see it? Do you even feel it? Your own shoulders here? What John's doing is, is laboring just at the urgency of this message. And unless you come to God now, it's going to be too late. Now, of course, if you're not a Christian, we long for you to pay heed to that message. Like the message of Christianity, if you're not a Christian, the message of Christianity is not just you must come to Christ. The message of Christianity, and hear it, is that you must come to Christ now. You must come to Jesus while you have time. Now you know, as well as I do, that we don't know the length of our days. You, you have no idea what's going to happen to you later on today. You don't know how long you have. And so, so hear from God's word that, come now, come to Jesus Christ while you have time. Come to this glorious one, the only one who can offer you salvation from God's wrath. Come now. And we could, we could linger there, can we? But as a minister of the gospel, do, do you know what, what really strikes me and it grabs my attention, and I'm sure it's the same for you, is the courage that John the Baptist shows. 
Doesn't that grab you? I mean, you can think about the stuff later on with Herod that will lead to his beheading. Boldness. But even, what was that line? You, you vibers. I mean, I mean you, you've seen the courage there. If you read the other, uh, uh, the synoptic versions of this, what you find is that John is not just addressing the crowd. It's even more courageous than that, that at this point, John is actually uh, speaking to the teachers of the law who are within the crowd. So he's saying that to the, 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 the Pharisees, respected, and he's saying publicly to them, you brood of vipers, what a boldness. And so you see what has to happen. That has to add content to the way that St. Peter's prays. Because who are we asking God to provide for Scotland? I mean, is it not men like John the Baptist? Isn't it? Like we need, you need to pray. Do you pray for new ministers? We need to pray for new ministers for Scotland. And and what do we pray? We, We pray, yes, that they would be men who love their people and men who pray for their people. But we also have to pray for more. We have to plead with God to provide men who will employ godly courage and lay before this country two realities. One, there is the reality of God's coming wrath on sin. And two, there is an urgent need for this country to run to Jesus Christ to escape that wrath. So we see the character of godly ministry, gospel ministry. We're nearly there, four. (coughs) Have you got them? I'll test you all at the door on the way out. The context of gospel ministry, the content of gospel ministry, the character of gospel ministry. Four, the concern of gospel ministry. I think if you're you're anything like me, we struggle with Bible reading, don't we? We, we? we struggle with it. But as you study your Bible at home, you come to portions of Scripture that just force you to pause and think and wrestle. Isn't that right? Come on. We all come to bits of Scripture where we need, almost feel like we need outside help. We need, uh, we need somebody to help us with it, to unpack it for us a little bit. I think we had uh, an example of this last week. If you were here last week, we were looking at Jesus as a youth in the temple. And we got to the reality of Jesus' intellectual development. And we just had to stop, didn't we? Just had to pause. That needs to be unpacked for us, I think. It's interesting to know, I think, in this, this text, that something similar happened with John the Baptist and these people. I'll give you two things to look at. First of all, verse 8. So, so John is preaching. I wonder if you've got the picture of that, have you? So John is camel here at the Jordan. Thousands, multitudes come out to, to hear him. There's this baptism going on. But what does he say, verse 8? He exhorts the crowd, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Does everybody see that? So he's not just saying, right, come and be baptized. Doesn't talk vaguely about repentance. He's saying, he's saying, you repent and then evidence that repentance in the way you live. That's what he's saying, isn't he? So he's saying, bear fruit in keeping with your repentance. That's the first thing. But look at verse 10. Can we do that? 
what, what, what happens with the crowd? The crowd hear that. They take it on board, maybe prompted by this urgency. What do they cry out? They cry out to John, yeah, but uh, how? Like bearing fruit of repentance. John, can, can you unpack that? Like what, what, does, what does that even look like? How do I live a, a repentant life? Did you see the crowd standing there? Think, what does that look like to live like that? Now, you'll allow me to say that what I think we've got there is of crucial importance to St. Peter's. Um, We are adept at slipping back into a deficient view of the Christian life, aren't we? I wonder if you think about the Christian life as I slip back into this all the time. Here's the Christian life. I am a recipient of God's grace. Oh, God has saved me. And now my task is to go and tell people about Jesus. That sound okay? We have to. What a privilege and a joy to be called to that. What's being missed out? We often ignore the ethical demands of Christian living. Don't we? We often forget that we are called to, to, to manifest the sincerity of our repentance in the way that we live. Our lives are supposed to be changed. Your life is supposed to be changed. You're supposed to manifest the change. So what do we do now? <laughs> right now, we stand at the Jordan, don't we? You and I, and we say to John, and what does that look like? Well, look back at the text. Look at verses 11 to 14. Do do you see that we're given, Luke emphasizes three examples of repentant living. Can you get them? 11 to 14, can the young people in the room get them? Three examples of repentant living, what it looks like. Do you see them? The, The first is so general, isn't it? So it's to the whole crowd, John speaks. And he says, if you've got two tunics... You, you give, and there's somebody who's poor, somebody without, then you give one away. There's this example, first of all, of generosity. Where do we go next? There's a tax collector. Friends and superiors, you, you don't need me to emphasize or explain how a tax collector was viewed in the ancient world, do you? We know this. We know that they were the dentists of the ancient world or, or the... Uh, Free church ministers of, of the ancient world, but they, they were not viewed on fondly. But, but what is called for from them? Do you see? They are to live in fairness, collecting no more than they should. So that's the second. What's the third example of repentant living? It's to a soldier, a big brute of a man. What's the call? It's it's don't extort people. Don't intimidate people. It's live in contentment. Live in honesty. Now, I'm going to turn this to you. You've got the three examples. What's the common denominator for them all? This call to this tunic, give your tunic, the tax collector, don't collect more money, the soldier. What would you say? You might come back and say, Andy, None of them are are called to abandon things and live a radical life. You know, John's not saying to the tax collector, give up your job, in with the P45 and go and live in a monastery. 
Now, there's, there's live the ordinary life in an extraordinary way, perhaps, but what, what, what else holds them together? Isn't it interesting to note they're all about treating our neighbor with care? Each of them. The call here is, is not to, to live a life that is preoccupied with ourselves as Christians, isn't it? Not to live a selfish life, but to manifest and display our repentance by showing concern for, for others. What does that make you do, Christian friend? I worry that it makes you analyze your life. What it should do, it should force you to analyze your heart and the sincerity of your repentance before God. Because what is the Christian life? Listen to me, it is much more than a profession of faith, isn't it? No, what's called for our lives that are utterly transformed by grace, transformed to selflessness. Last thing, and most briefly, context, content, character, concern. Last of all, we see the center of gospel ministry. And so this is the briefest, it's the last, it's the most important the center of gospel ministry. I think it is interesting as you look at this portion of scripture that from a worldly perspective, John the Baptist did not have a successful ministry. Did he? Not from from a material or earthly perspective. He did not have a private jet to John the Baptist. He did not sell out arenas. He was not on a conference circuit Was he as a preacher? No, because he preached against ungodly behavior. He ends up in a prison, about to lose his head. So there is surely a sixth cost of gospel ministry lurking in the background here. But surely we have to close by considering the one at the very heart of his ministry. The one around whom all of John's ministry revolved. Let's look at verse 15 to 17. Look at verse 15. What happens? As happens in communities of faith, there's gossiping going on, isn't there? Do you notice that the people begin to gossip? The people begin to speculate as they hear John, as they go out to him to be baptized, they begin to speculate, wait a minute. See this one out in the wilderness, perhaps he is the Christ, perhaps he is the Messiah. They begin to speculate, but I would ask you, what does John do with all of that attention? What does, he, does he embrace all of that language? Of course not. Does he even tolerate that language, that speculation? You know not, but what would you say? Would you say that John the Baptist all of that talk away. He doesn't do that either. What John the Baptist does is redirect all of this attention to where it ought to be. He deflects all of this attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, now look at it with me in verse 16. Look what he says of himself. I mean, they're all there. There's probably thousands of people at the Jordan and they all are giving him the attention and they really want to give him all of the adulation. And John's there and he said, no, Jesus, Jesus, 
Look what he says of himself. He says, I am not even worthy of untying the straps on on Jesus' sandals. I hope you understand the the image there, do you? It's the idea of student-teacher relationships in the ancient world. So in the first century, students in the room. I wonder if you like this idea. Okay, so you look at your overdraft. Students in the first century world were not expected to pay uh, their teachers or their instructors. Sound all right so far, right? But what they were expected to do in the first century world, they were expected to serve their teachers in various different ways. But there were some tasks, jobs, that were viewed as being so menial that it wouldn't be fitting for a student to do some tasks that were so lowly and menial that they were put to the lowest of the servant. Tasks like, so lowly, like untying the straps of a sandal. And now you look at John the Baptist and you see him there at the Jordan. And can you, can you hear what he's saying of himself? He is saying to this crowd, as a minister, he is saying, I am nothing. That's what John is saying. He is saying, and excuse me, but he is saying, I am the lowest of the low. I am the scum of the earth. And he's saying, instead, look to Jesus. He's saying, look to the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. Now, I, I close with an obvious, obvious thing. We are going to start receiving candidates for ministry. And uh, there, these men who come to us, will have, in the modern world, a real and deep temptation in their lives. I think you know what it is. Because of the way that the world is set up with social media, and because of this celebrity culture, the temptation for a young guy in ministry is to use ministry to make a name for themselves. To use ministry to try and seek the limelight And so as we start receiving candidates at St. Peter's, maybe one this year, maybe one next year, maybe two, and coming with their their families, what, what should we do? What must we do? We must foster a different attitude. We must seek to to foster the attitude, the spirit that is displayed by John. We want to see these candidates start their ministries, continue their ministries by saying what he must increase, but I must decrease begin their ministries, continue their ministries, seeking first the honor of Jesus Christ. And as a congregation, we know why that is. It's because of who Jesus is and what he has done. And what does John say here? Jesus is the one who is greater and mightier than he. John just baptizes there at the Jordan with water. What is true of Jesus? He baptizes first with the Spirit. He alone is the one who is able to make people spiritually alive. He doesn't baptize with, with, with water. What does he baptize? With fire. He's the judge. He's the one with the axe at the foot of the tree. He's the one with the winnowing fork in his hand, ready to, to separate the, the wheat and the chaff. He's the one who is set soon to judge the living and the dead. And John, in verse 18, and it's a, an amazing thing at this point in redemptive history, In verse 18, John can classify his ministry, did you notice it in verse 18, as good news. He's a minister of the gospel, good, and we're looking at this thing, but what, there's an axe at a tree, and there's a winnowing fork, and there's, how is this good news? And the answer is, 
all because of Jesus, isn't it? That's why it's good news. That soon to come was Jesus, his ministry would soon begin. And all by his blood, a repentance and faith is possible. One that results in complete and full redemption from our sins. May all glory and all honor and praise be heaped upon his name. Let's pray. Lord God, we uh, come to you as, as God. We look here and see again that all gospel ministry should be centered on the Lord Jesus Christ, but we see more than that in this call to bear fruit to repentance and keeping with repentance. It's not just gospel ministry, but all of our lives should have Christ Jesus as the focus and at the center. And so we thank you that you truly are, Lord Jesus, the shepherd of the sheep. You are the one who leads us. You are the one who has laid down your life for your sheep, for your friends. Lord God, we ask that you would help us to follow you. Lord God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.